Welcome to the Holy Smokes Podcast, a show about faith, friendship, fine tobacco and drink. I'm Steve Ryder in the Lion's Den in Monument, Colorado, and I am with Jim Fenlison. Jim, my man, welcome to the Holy Smokes Podcast. Thanks, Steve. Been looking forward to this and always enjoy hanging out with you. Oh, you're a special dude, man, except for you being a Vikings fan, but <laughs> but I haven't held that against you. Just, That's right. <laughs> it's, it's just a little, little bantering back and forth, some trash talking and... And it was kind of a fun way as we got our relationship started to have something that we yeah. we both followed passionately and uh, could have friends who followed it in a different way. For listeners that don't know, I'm a Packer fan, Jim's a Viking fan, and so the obvious divisional rivalry that goes back many, many years. Yep. So, first question, what you smoking? You know, I have a Providencia. Um, it is a, I think it is a... Um, blend that they're trying, so I don't know yeah. much about it beyond that, although it is a great draw, and it's the first cigar I have smoked with the notch cutter that my boys gave me for Christmas. And it is a beautiful, beautiful cutter. Thank you. Yeah, it's, it's uh, kind of a copper color, yeah. nice heavy metal it looks like. It's just like nice and sturdy. Feels good, and it made a great clean cut. So, <laughs> so my, my boys are uh, helping me as I continue my Holy Smokes journey. So lit it with the uh, torch lighter that they gave me last Christmas. So ah. I think there's a trend. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder what's coming next year. I'm, I'm hoping maybe it's more in the cigar range. <laughs> I don't know that I need any more tools. And I have an Ave Maria and uh, this thing's starting out really, really nice. So, Jim, you're a Montana kid. I am. We moved there when I was five years old. Where were you born? I was born in the Twin Cities. Okay. Thus the Vikings affiliation. Okay. Is that where your parents were from? Uh, my dad grew up in the Red River Valley of northern Minnesota, and my mom grew up in southwest Iowa, uh, close to Des Moines. Well, probably closer to Council Bluffs. What do they do? So, my dad was a pastor. Um, they're both retired now and my mother was a waitress back before we used the term servers and she was a waitress. She worked in the same restaurant for 33 years and when people wow. would come in, her regulars would come in, she would note that they had walked in the front and they would wait to get into her section if it was full and she would order breakfast for them. So rather than give them a menu... They would sit down and ask what they were having for breakfast, and she would tell them. Um, <laughs> so she was well known in town and for the town surrounding, and her nickname was Dilly, or is Dilly, as in she's a Dilly. So just to give you an idea of the influence of that, I'll give you a couple quick things about my mom. Yeah. Every year, businessmen in town would come in, in addition to giving her a tip, would give her an envelope around Christmas time. And in that envelope would be, could have been 40 bucks, could have been 300 bucks, and ask her to find someone who needed it to give to. So that relationship was such that they knew she would, and they knew she wouldn't just keep it. And my dad was a pastor, so they knew she knew people who needed that help. So one of the great joys of my mother's life was every Christmas time, She'd have, sometimes it was 2000 2500 bucks to give to families in need, uh, which gave her great joy. 
That's cool. Second, here in Colorado Springs, we had um, Hall of Fame football player, Jan Stenerud. Yeah. And so I was Packer flying. great. Yes, and, and a Viking for a while. And the Chiefs. Uh. So, <laughs> anyway, that's another story. But a kicker for those that don't know. Yeah. Football and don't know who Jan well, Jan was a his his football career started at Montana State, and my brother and I were gym rats up at Montana State when my dad pastored in Bozeman, and so we would go up and shag kicks and all that kind of stuff. We were a little young to do that with with Jan, but I sat down on a plane leaving Colorado Springs. Oh, this must have been ten, twelve years ago, and was seated next to Jan, mm-hmm. and so I'd met him, you know, casual acquaintance. So I yeah. told him who I was, and we had a little conversation. I said, well, I'm, I'm sure my mother would tell you hello if she knew I was going to sit next to you. Who's your mother? Dilly from the four Bs. Oh, Dilly! <laughs> <laughs> and the entire flight, we talked about things about my mother. Um, oh, so cool. she had that kind of a personality, that kind of a rapport with people. But, you know, 33 years in the same restaurant is almost unheard of as yes, a server. Totally. But she loved it. She connected with people, had a running bet on the Vikings-Packers game with one of her regulars. And uh, so if she won, she would buy him a cup of coffee. And if he won, or if the Packers won, he gave her something. I can't remember what it was, but that was their, every time it came up, that was their In the 70s and 80s, the Vikings were winning most of those. Yeah, that's true. It was a great time in history. (laughs) (laughs) Unfortunately, too long ago. But anyway, that's my mother. She is everyone's grandmother and still to this day just loves little kids. Mm. Um, She was always a Sunday school teacher. Always that nurturing, nurturing part of her. She's full blood Danish and she's a practical joker. So I usually, if she was here today, I would introduce her as my mother, who's a great Dane. And uh, (laughs) just to give you an idea of my childhood, we... You know, dad was a pastor, started churches, so we we didn't have a lot, but we always had enough. And uh, my mom made that house fun. And so I remember one time in high school, I was going from school to my after-school job to a choir concert. And I had like 15 minutes to get showered, eat, and head over to the school. And so I went down. My mom, because she worked the breakfast shift, would once a week make breakfast for dinner which was often our favorite meal. So I sat down, plate of pancakes was sat in front of me, and my dad started peppering me with questions. How was your day? What's going on? What's the deal with the concert? You know, are you ready for this? Are you ready for that? I mean, just almost at an unusual pace, but I didn't notice because I'm I'm Uh focused. I got to get there. And so my mom comes by and I take, get my pancakes all ready, take a fork and, and... talking and can't cut him and so she swings by and hands me a butter knife and uh, I'm still trying to answer all my dad's questions and now I'm going at these pancakes with a fork and a butter knife and uh, so she comes by and hands me a steak knife and I realize this isn't right and uh, my mother had cut up an old sheet and baked that sheet into the pancake. And uh, she almost fell over. She was laughing so hard. But that was, that was our house. Every weekend night, she, you know, she worked all day, but she would make 
cookies. She called them monster cookies. They had everything in them. Yeah. Chocolate chips, M&Ms, all kinds of stuff. But she would make them in a turkey pan, five batches at a time. And kids would be at our house, often 30 or 40 of them at a time. And she'd just make cookies all night, and they'd get eaten as they came out of the oven. And it was just, it was a great, great time. Tell me about your dad. So my dad was, when I was born in the cities, was a research chemist. Mm. And then that day, you know, that was late 50s, that was pretty top notch. Mm -hmm. Worked for Pillsbury Mills Mm -hmm. um, and was, after I was born, was sitting for his Ph.D. in research chemistry, was defending his thesis Mm -hmm. and felt that he had been running from a call for God on his life to be a pastor Mm. and stopped in the middle of his dissertation um, defense and went to seminary. So quit his job, which was, you know, to, just to give you an idea, my dad was part of a flying club. They owned seven airplanes. I mean, he was making bank yeah. because it was the up-and-coming thing at the totally. time. Totally. You know, I always teased him. He was participated in better living through chemistry. But he was making, you know, those were, those were the days when they were coming out with instant cake mixes and all mm-hmm. that kind of stuff, and that was all based on chemistry. Mm-hmm. So he did that. I was an infant and then starting into toddler, probably when he went in. And there was a brother between my my brother and I that died at childbirth. Mm. And then uh, I have a brother who's almost five years younger than I am. Not quite, almost. And so my brother was born when my dad was in seminary. And then he became, a group of guys from Montana came, Bozeman, Montana, asked him to come out and start a church. And that's how we ended up in Montana. So we started Bozeman Baptist Church, very creative title. Um, And uh, (laughs) about seven years into that, that church launched a daughter church or sister church, however you want to look at it, called Belgrade Baptist Church. Again, creative titling. That was, I was in, let's see, we moved the end of my seventh grade year. And so... We moved out to Belgrade. Which and one where's Belgrade? So it's it's not too far from Bozeman, but a smaller town that had started to grow, which was a reason for planting a church there. I thought it was the end of the world, offered to get an apartment, stay in Bozeman, because you know, Belgrade was the dinky little town. If you go there now, I mean it's got it's full blown. But my dad could see that. I couldn't see that as a seventh grader, and I was getting moved out of my friends and all of those kind of things. Yeah, and it was I was a preacher's kid to boot, so it's not a great way to enter school. Who are mm-hmm. you? I'm the new Baptist preacher's kid. Okay, yeah, let's go out and fight. Um, so, mm. <laughs> but it was a, it was a much smaller school, which turned out to be a great thing for for me. But my dad was bivocational much of his early pastoring years. He came to Christ on the farm up in the Red River Valley in Minnesota. And a pastor there drove nine miles out to the farmhouse and led my dad to Christ, and he was the first one in his family to become a Christian. Mm. You know, the odds of my becoming a Christian went sky high that day. And one of the fun things we did, my parents recently had their 60th wedding anniversary. And cool. so we had everybody in, including all six of his brothers. Wow. And at the service, I asked Still all around. Yeah. That's cool. I asked all six of his brothers to speak. Some of them really didn't like that. Um, but 
didn't give them a choice. <laughs> but the touching thing to me was each one of them talked about a time sitting on the bed at the farm where my dad said, where do you stand with Christ? And so he was instrumental in each of his brothers wow. coming to Christ. Wow. To give you a little bit of a background about my dad, and, and I hesitate to do this somewhat because, um, well, I guess I would just say, listen to the end of the story, not just the beginning. Yeah. So my, my dad's biological father was shot by the police in the back based on a misidentification of who he was. Mm. We hear a lot about those things today, but it was, it was buried. Uh, he was shot Saturday afternoon. He was buried 7 o'clock Sunday morning. Oh, no. And uh, my grandmother, who had become a widow in this process with two little boys, was given a ride to the cemetery and wasn't even told how he died. All covered up. We had an FBI agent that went to the church later who helped my dad uncover some of the pieces of that. This would have been the 1930s, I guess, late 30s, maybe early 40s. No, it'd be late 30s, because my dad was three when this happened. And so, you know, his mother now has to find a way to make it. And they were on a rented farm. And so she moved into town and became a school teacher and remarried, I don't know the exact amount of time, but not too long after that, which was as much survival as anything. Yeah. And so she was my dad's teacher for his beginning years. But his stepfather, who I have always known as grandpa or, and as my grandfather and who we loved, was not a gracious man when my dad was young. Um, beat him, um, mm. broke a two by four over his back at one point. Oh I, I will tell you this, though. My grandfather became a Christian reconciled that relationship was restored with all of the brothers and my dad was the oldest so he kind of stepped in and took the brunt of it and uh you know but it, it's part of our family history and part of the reason i say that is one of the great things my dad did for me i could list a number but i'll just highlight two one is he became a christian which meant the odds of my becoming a christian were much higher but second, when we would get disciplined as kids, and my, my brother's a wonderful guy, pastors a church in Helena, Montana, I earned the most discipline. You? Yeah. Really? <laughs> surprise, surprise. <laughs> <laughs> but I can remember that we would get sent up to either our room or his room. And I always thought it was part of the punishment to sit there and contemplate what you've done. And, you know, in fear of what might come next or what the punishment would be. But sometimes it was an hour. And, you know, as a kid, you're just, that's, that's forever. And what I learned later in life was my dad would go and walk and pray so that he didn't do to me wow. what his oh stepfather goodness. did to him. Wow. And, you know, that's, that's what a... emotional intelligence. Yeah. Um, wow. And my, my dad is a big farm boy. His nickname in high school was Bone Crusher because of the way he played football. <laughs> that was another thing that came up at the 60th wedding anniversary. So we were talking and all of my uncles were standout football players. Mm -hmm. And I think it was a place for them to get their aggression 
out from what was happening at home. My grandfather, so there was 21 straight years that a Fennelson was a starter on the football team at the local high school. My grandfather never attended a single game. Didn't think it had value. So we're sitting in this little foyer at this. We rented a, a retreat center to have this, this reunion. Mm-hmm. And so I get my uncles talking about football. And I said, so tell me about my dad's playing football, because I'd always heard little bits and pieces. And his next oldest brother goes, yeah, they called him Bone Crusher, because one time he hit a quarterback so hard, kid was knocked out for half an hour, and they canceled the rest of the game. Oh, and and my dad said wasn't really that bad. He was a really tall kid. I hit him in the middle. He kind of bended over and then came down and hit his head hard. But they pulled an ambulance out on the field and thought he might die. But, you know, these boys, when you played against the Fennelson in that generation, it was, they were tough um, and big. Then each of my uncles said, well, yeah, you know, I broke that kid's arm. Well, I, I broke the guy's leg from such and such a high school, you know, and I'm going, my lands. But Grandpa wouldn't give them a ride to um, practice. So they take the bus to school in the morning. And after football practice, they ran to be home in time for the 6 o'clock milking on the dairy, which also made them studs because... You that know, extra conditioning yeah, after practice exactly. is a coach's dream. I used to coach high school football. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, that's a little bit of a sidetrack. But that just gives you a little bit. So my, my dad's mercy and compassion came from his relationship in Christ, not from a model. Yeah. And uh, I'm eternally grateful for that. Cool. Um, my life could have been much, much different. So dad pastored that church in Belgrade for 27 years. Yeah. Through a series of miracles, as he retired, they had a church building that was new and fully paid for, no debt. Um, that is outstanding. Wow. Yeah, that's... a. Probably a story for another time, but that was phenomenal to watch God do that because in that process, he also, God provided for my dad's retirement. So, but I'll I'll skip back to, so we, we hopped in the, I think it was a 58 Chevy, might've been a 59 Chevy, 1965 and headed to Montana. And I thought this was grand fun, you know. I was kind of a rambunctious kid, as you've, you've pointed out. And, you know, the last thing I did in Minneapolis was my cousin lived across the street and, and uh, bloodied his nose while we were playing with baseball bats. But um, <laughs> they were the red plastic kind, but we were five. You know, so that's my departure from Minneapolis. But we get in the car, drive, and you know, Dad's got his fresh seminary degree, and, and we head out to Montana. And... So we took two days and went through Yellowstone Park on the way, which was kind of a little, little out, out of the way, way but yeah. not too bad. Yeah. Bozeman, for those of you who don't know, is about 90 miles north of the northwest corner of the park. And so we're there. So my parents met in college. My dad was a, on a baseball scholarship, could have done a football scholarship, did a baseball scholarship. But he was good enough that he never went to practice, still started. Mm-hmm. Um, different time. But he was quite a good baseball player. So they would drive out there in the window regulators. Mm-hmm. So, you know, no, no electric windows in those days. Mm-hmm. Had broken on my mom's side of the car. 
and there's no air conditioning. So had the window cracked open about three inches and we're driving through and we stopped to look at a bear, uh, which there's lots of bears in Yellowstone, more then than there are now. And this bear makes its way up to the car. And my dad is taking pictures with a little brownie box camera. Mm-hmm. And we still have this picture. My parents still have this picture. Comes out a lot of times when the family's there. But he's taking pictures of this bear. Well, my mom can't get the regulator off of the dashboard and get it on there and get the window rolled up. So my dad has this picture. My brother and I are in the back seat. Of course, there's no car seats in those days, whatever we were doing. And uh, this bear's snout is pushed through this gap in the window. And he's got one paw here. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, next to his snout, for those of you who can't see my gesture, but you know, he could have just popped that window out and come on in. And my dad took the picture. My mom was furious. <laughs> She's in mortal danger and he's snapping photos. Um, so, but that was just kind of, we, we had a lot of fun at our house. So lived in Bozeman, built a church building, and then uh, the church building had a parsonage attached to it. Mm-hmm. And my dad really didn't like that because then he didn't own own the house. So when we moved to Belgrade, he bought a house and we had church in the house. Highest attendance was 89. And I sat in the kitchen sink, literally in the kitchen sink. We had services in that house. We did a 16. As a seventh grader. Yeah. We did a 16 by 32 edition which created a little sanctuary there on the end of the house, but was also great for those Friday, Saturday nights when all our friends were over because we'd take all the chairs down and we had this huge room. We had ping pong and Nerf basketball. My poor mother tried to raise plants and every weekend her plants got killed during Nerf basketball. Um, (laughs) We'd take them out. But anyway, we we had a lot of fun growing up. And so that was, I think, that was my answer to my dad. My dad tried to retire Ended up going back to a church where there was a moral failing with the pastor. Did that for a few years. Taught for a few years. Um, and so his version of retirement today, even with COVID, is uh, he leads about five Bible studies and uh, teaches occasionally in the Sunday school class. He'll be 84 in March. That's awesome. Yeah. That's cool. So he still writes. You know, and he's he's deteriorating, but... He's still very motivated, very, I mean, we, we, my brother and I learned our work ethic from our mom and dad because mm. they both worked very hard. Yeah. So I'll wrap up the answer to the question about my dad. So I was up there this July. I now have a grandson. And Congratulations. so, thank you. We're very enjoying that very much. But I took a trip up there. My son and grandson joined us there. They were in Montana for a wedding and we got pictures with four generations which will be a keepsake. Not sure how long that'll be available. So we wanted to do that. So my parents have retired to the town my brother's a pastor in. So my brother and I grab my dad, take him out for coffee. He holds court at the local Burger King probably six mornings a week. And guys from his Bible study come by and all this, and it's just, he loves it. So we took him out for coffee and said, Dad... What else is there that you want to do while you still can? We gave him a little heads up, so he had thought about it a little bit ahead of time. And uh, he looked at us and he goes, I'd like to go back to that church where I found Christ. 
So this next summer, my brother and my dad and I are going to take a road trip. And we're going to end up on Sunday morning in Hitterdahl Baptist Church mm-hmm. in northern Minnesota mm-hmm. and take my dad back to the church where he accepted Christ. And, mm-hmm. you know, he could have picked anything, but that was what he picked. Mm-hmm. I grew up very fundamentalist, independent Baptist. My dad found his way to much more grace over the course of his lifetime, which I'm thankful for. And I met the guy who led him to Christ. And so in my life, I run across a lot of people from a lot of traditions. But I caution people to not be too harsh on traditions that are different than ours. Because my dad, with an abusive stepfather, isolated on a farm probably wouldn't have been attracted to the Your Loving Father presentation of the gospel. Mm. Because I don't think he could have comprehended it. So although it was very legalistic, it was the way that God chose to bring my dad to Christ. And because of that, I tend to not be critical whether my friends are from the fundamentalist background or a charismatic background or a Pentecostal background or fill in the blank, as long as Jesus is at the center. That is wise. So. Wow. But if my dad were here, he would tell you jokes. Might tell you a couple times now at this point in his life, but uh, (laughs) he's quick-witted and and loved people. Uh, I'll end that with one last story. Probably said that already, but in our little town, a a pro football player retired, defensive lineman for Houston, who had found his wife in bed with another man and killed him. And he was a tough guy, a huge man. You know, you knew in town you didn't mess with Ray. Mm-hmm. And his son, his adopted son, he got remarried, um, came to vacation Bible school at our church. And nobody wanted to go follow up, but my dad did. And he stood on the door of a trailer house, knocked on the door. Ray answered, filled the the whole door, and said, I'd like to talk to you about Tim coming to, to our vacation Bible school. And I think he was stunned, and he let him in. And my dad led Ray to Christ. Mm. And Ray became a deacon in our church, Mm. had a wonderful testimony. When my dad retired from that church in, in Belgrade, there was probably well, there was several hundred people in the auditorium, the new debt-free auditorium. And when they asked the question, I actually asked the question, how many of you did my dad lead to Christ? Well over half raised their hands. And that's the legacy of my dad. Wow. That is cool. Yep. So high school, what kinds of stuff were you involved in? Well, I, I went a troublemaker. to a, Yeah, that's true. <laughs> you know, um, it's followed you. Yeah. Something we got troublemakers never outgrow. <laughs> oh. well, I, I remember my mom pulled this out one of the recent times we were up there and uh, it was my sixth grade report card and had all the grades in it. You know, I did pretty well in grades. There's this little section for a note at the bottom. Teacher writes, Jim is a bright boy, but very disruptive in class and needs to learn how to pay attention. (laughs) 
Eh, maybe on my gravestone. <laughs> <laughs> Jim is a bright boy, but needs to learn to pay attention. Yeah. Uh, but um, so we moved to Belgrade. Eighth grade year was kind of tough for me because new school, new new stuff. But it was a small school. And most of the people in my school had been in school together since they were kindergarten. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, kind of worked in. Church started to grow a little bit. That helped. But, you know, my, my graduating class, I think we ended up 69 of us walking. Mm-hmm. I think there was 81, and not all of them made it to mm-hmm. graduation. So we were a smaller school, so you could be involved in a lot of stuff because there were spots. Yeah, exactly. So I, as I have done often in my life, probably overcommitted. And uh, I was in choir and in band, played football, what tried position? basketball one year. What, yeah. what positions? I was a football quarterback. Oh. So, but I, you know, I, I tried basketball one year and my relationship to gravity did not make that work out well. And part of our town, so our town was um, settled by Czechoslovakian railroad workers. Belgrade. Mm-hmm. And the other part of the town that came together was Dutch farmers. So my senior year in high school, I was five foot five, 155 pounds. Yeah, there was trees that played basketball in our high school because there were these Dutch kids who were, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. magnificently tall. Mm-hmm. And uh, I really didn't, I graduated when I was 17, I went to college when I was 17 could have used that extra year because I grew like four inches my first yeah. year in college, which yeah. that would have been nice to have had my senior year in high school. Coach always made us run track because that's how you stayed in shape for football. I, I'm not a track person. Uh, I've always had knee problems and it highlighted those. So mm-hmm. that was never fun, but figured out I could throw the javelin. So that got me off some of the longer runs. Played baseball in the summers. Uh, it was not a high school team because the season in Montana is such that it doesn't fit into the high school schedule well. I was a pretty decent baseball player and then uh, went to Liberty University thinking I was going to play baseball and found out I was a pretty decent player in a small place. Big you know, fish my, in a small pond. Yeah, one of my one of my dorm mates, roommates, was uh, Lee Guterman, a six eight left-handed pitcher from California, throwing ninety one, ninety two. <laughs> You know, you get in the box and you see arms and legs and hear a pop behind you and think, thank God he didn't hit me. <laughs> <laughs> Never seen anything like that before. So I, I really didn't have a college baseball career. I thought, I thought that would be a given, and it wasn't, but that was okay. But high school, um, you know, typical small town, Baptist preacher's kids. So I had like 400 parents, and my dad did a pretty good job of sheltering us from that, but it got old. Everybody felt they had the right to speak into me. Um, I rebelled with, from that somewhat. But I remember, so, let's see, it would have been between my sophomore and junior years. Montana, you can get driver's license pretty young. Um, mm-hmm. It's good, but it's bad. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I was driving my, my parents' Plymouth Grand Fury 3 puke green boat to the grocery store. Um, yeah, and I'd just gotten my license or recently got my license, so you'd looking for any opportunity to drive. Mm-hmm. And uh, so coming back, we had one little drive in, well, the Red Baron drive in in town, and 
Mr. Klompine from south of town was putting Ron, who was several years ahead of me, was putting his car up for sale, which was a 68 Mustang Fastback, 302 Boss, L7015s on the back. For those of you who are not gearheads, it was a hot rod. Way too much hot rod for a high school kid to have. So I swing the boat around, pull in. Didn't know Ron was selling his car. He's not. This, he was a gruff old guy. We were all scared of him. And uh, I'm selling it. I can't do his voice anymore. I won't yeah. be able to finish. But he had gruff route. You know, he, he yeah. just, your blood ran cold when you talked to Mr. Clompy. Unfairly, but that was the persona. And uh, we have this conversation back and forth. How much did he want for it? He wanted $2,500. How much did I have? I had 1600 He eyed me up and he goes, you think your father would let you buy this? Mm, yes, sir. My dad liked fast cars. Okay. He goes, go find him. So I take off, go find my dad, bring him back. He and Mr. Clompine talk for a little bit. We take it for a spin and get back. Mr. Clompine said... Here's the keys. Meet me at the bank on Monday. This is a Saturday night or Saturday afternoon. Meet me at the bank on Monday and pay the money. That's how I got my first car. 68 Mustang Fastback, hot rod, tricked out, tuck and roll interior. I mean, it was it was sweet. He'd gotten his girlfriend pregnant, so I had it cleaned well. Um, and, <laughs> and, uh, and so that kind of became part of my persona in high school. Arguably the top two best cars in town. Mayor's kid had a had a nice Camaro, but at least the top three. Yeah. And, um, you know, we, we did crazy things. I probably should have died in that car, but it was, you know, do power slides, go out in the dirt roads, and spin it around, go to parking lots, flip donuts in the snow. Um, actually drove it under a semi-truck one time. That was not smart. Not sure I'd do that again, but, uh, you know, just stupid things as a kid, drag raced and... But that became a big part of my life and it introduced me to something outside of my norm. One of the guys in the church gave me all of his eight tracks. So for all of our millennial holy smokers, I'm not even sure how to describe that to them. But anyway, <clears throat> giant cassette that just kept looping back and forth. There you go. But he had the entire Beatles music on eight track and he had bought a car that didn't have an eight track. So he gave me all of the Beatles music on 8-track. Oh. I didn't have really have any other 8-tracks, and I had spent every penny I could to buy the car. And so that became my music, which was not a good thing with my father. You know, remember, yeah, independent fundamentalist Baptist. Yeah, fundamentalist Baptist. So, I mean, we, we couldn't play with cards at our house, couldn't go to movies. My same. brother, my brother oh, yeah. was a homecoming king. Couldn't go to the dance. Yeah, same for um, me growing up. Yeah, you know, and that's just we just we figured out how to make that work. Yeah. But I played that music probably far too loud, as my hearing aids now uh, attest. I can honestly say I didn't get in terrible trouble, but I probably did things I wouldn't have done if I didn't have the car. One thing that I did learn. <laughs> so remember my mother, the practical joker. Mm-hmm. Second weekend, I had it. She needed to go to Ennis, 60 miles away, to go to a meeting. Saturday, my, she goes, would you like to drive? Yeah, but can we take my car? Okay. So my mother's in the passenger seat. Coming into Ennis, you come down a two-mile hill. You can mm-hmm. see everything in the valley, mm-hmm. including the cop car at the bottom, Montana State Highway Patrol. 
So I set that thing. So one of the reasons I did not like Jimmy Carter as a president was the mandatory 55 mile an hour speed limit at the time I got my 68 Mustang Fastback. <laughs> really irritated me. But anyway, um, so mandatory 55. Montana is a kind of a vigilante state that's very independent. Yeah. So the rules were anything between 55 and I think it was, it was something over 100 was a $5 fee you could pay on site or $5 fine you could pay on site and no uh, points on your record, which I came to use that to my advantage later on. But this is the second weekend I had the car, so I set it on 55, go down, and learned from a police officer, highway patrolman, that Ron Clumpian had put a high-speed rear end in this car but hadn't changed out the speedometer cable. So I think I'm dead on 55, sliding by this officer, and he comes out of the barrel pit, spitting gravel, white sirens, the whole nine yards, and pulls me over. And he comes up to the side, you know, I'm thinking, great, my mom's in this passenger seat. So he, he says, okay, how fast were you going? I said, 55. He goes, don't lie to me, kid. And uh, my mom starts to get her hackles up. I said, sir, it was on 55. And he goes, come back here. Go back. We look at his gun. It's 72. And so now he thinks I'm just lying. Yeah. And so we're going after it. And, you know, all over what's going to be a $5 fine anyway. But I just keep $5 bills in my car. <laughs> here you go. <laughs> that was the next summer. <laughs> my friends and I would go get out on a weekend. We'd put a $5 bill on the dashboard and we'd drive till it was gone. Um, <laughs> so, but anyway, the, uh, so the cop can, he's, he's just giving me the riot act yeah. and, you know, and, and I, I get it, but no, I, totally. I didn't like it then. So my mother gets out of the car. And she turns around and calls him to the back of the car. Mm -hmm. She goes, I looked at his speedometer. It was 55. You need to figure out what's wrong with your gun. He's going to get in this car. We're going to drive away. And that's the end of it. And I'm saying, you know, we're going to go to jail. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he didn't even write me a ticket. <laughs> and, and off we went. And that was the end of it. So my, my mother had... She she was able to convince things of people of great things, uh, which came in handy at sometimes was not so handy at others. But uh, but that day it was pretty handy. But anyway, that car. What I then realized was I had taken that car out previous to that, got it out on the freeway, and had the speedometer at 120. <laughs> so I can interpolate. <laughs> the good part of that is it just, it really scared me. And so it probably kept me from doing other stupid things in that yeah. car. But it was a great car. Bought it for $1,600, drove it for 10 years, sold it for ten grand. Never been able to do that with another car. <laughs> so my boys start to drive in their high school years. Dad, can we get a Mustang like what you had? Absolutely not. <laughs> but um, high school... You know, it turned out to be a, a great group of kids. You know, we had our disagreements and stuff. Um, but it was a small enough school that it was, we were almost self-policing. Somebody acted up in class, we'd take care of it because we didn't all want to get punished. Mm -hmm. And uh, so in that way, it was, it was very good. But, you know, I lived in a very small world. 
lived in this valley in Montana. We rarely traveled. When we did, we would go to Grandpa's farm and we would help with harvest. And then we'd swing down and see my other grandparents and come home all inside of a week so that my dad didn't miss a Sunday at church. Mm. And I wouldn't recommend that to people, but that's just what my dad did. It's what the culture did at the time. Yeah, exactly. And um, so, you know, we tease my brother. Yeah, we've traveled internationally. We drove up and went across the Canadian border and came back. But we really didn't go far beyond that for high school. Mm -hmm. You're talking about football. So I dislocated my shoulder one day. A guy hit me and popped it out. And I passed out. So, you know, it's not like today where everything's stabilized. They haul you off to the side make sure you can still fog a mirror. They use smelling salts to bring me back, which is a terrible experience. When I came back, my mother had come down out of the stands. And my, my coach actually told this at our 25th high school reunion. And uh, so I, I'm laying on the ground, and my coach is like mm-hmm. less than a foot away and less than two feet away. On the other side is my mother. And my coach is gone. Fennelson, 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 you know, trying to mm-hmm. bring you back around. And I opened my eyes and I looked at him and I hear my mother say, get on your feet, get back out there and play. <laughs> Shocked my coach. <laughs> but, but that was just, you know, my parents both grew up on farms and, you know, if, if you weren't dead, you didn't, well, if you weren't dead, you didn't need a doctor. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> that kind of typified what what we did. We went hard and fast and long and, yeah, I could get on my bicycle, ride north of town before I had a driver's license, mm-hmm. and I could um, bring two trout home before dinner. It was the idyllic Montana childhood. You went off to Liberty? I went off to Liberty. So I got on an airplane, 17 years old, never been east of the Mississippi, never been on an airplane before. Got to Washington, D.C., had to catch a train. For those of you who know the difference between Reagan Airport and the Union Station train station. I, I showed my rural ignorance several times on that track, but finally got to Liberty. Realized that the brochure that showed buildings were renderings rather than actual buildings. My dad and I fought quite a bit about where I was going to go to school, so Liberty was kind of a compromise, which is one of his brothers and a couple pastors thought was terribly liberal, so I'll give you an idea. <laughs> Where did you want to go? My dad wanted me to be a pastor. Mm-hmm. And uh, he wanted me to go to a, a Bible college in Minnesota, affiliated with the seminary that he went to. And so I wanted to go anywhere but there. And because uh, I didn't feel like I should be a pastor and wanted to do more business. And so uh, we had kind of come to an agreement that I'd go to Bob Jones because they had an accounting department that you could get your CPA with. And then the Liberty Singers had a cancellation, talked my dad into singing at the church. And once I saw that, I went to him and said, hey, if you let him sing in the church, you can't tell me I can't go. That was my grand <laughs> grand plan Reasoning. to get to Liberty. Reasoning. Yeah. So I got there. And, you know, met some great lifelong friends there. I worked through college. So I worked sometimes 40 hours a week, but sometimes less. But just try to take advantage of everything because my world got so much bigger yeah. when I got to Liberty. Yeah. 
And one of the things Dr. Falwell used to do is he'd put two kids from each state on a bus and we'd go up and lobby in D.C. Because you know, he had kids from every state, so that worked. Mm-hmm. Which kind of gave me a bug for politics. We set up a business student structure that had a chairman. I was the chairman of the business students club. And that gave me a lot of access to Dr. Falwell. And one day in one of those meetings, he was talking about how, you know, all the things that were coming. And, you know, he was, Jerry was a big promoter and had a big vision, which some of which is still coming to pass now today. But I raised my hand and fairly respectfully said, you know, I hear you say that. But all the things you talked about help the preacher boys. They don't help the business students or the education students or the, the other disciplines. And he paused and he looked at me and he said, I hadn't really thought of that. Jim, can you and I hang out after the meeting? And I'm thinking, I'm on my way out. <laughs> you know, I'm headed to Bob Jones because I'm going to get myself kicked out of here. And to his credit, we went to McDonald's, got a Big Mac, He'd take his Suburban and park up behind the McDonald's. And sat, he sat and talked to me about that. And he goes, I'm glad you brought that up because you know, nobody tells me those kind of things. Ooh. And, uh, Ooh. You know, and that began a very wonderful friendship. Mm. Jerry Falwell Sr. had a profound impact on my life. He let me see a much bigger world. Cool. And gave me provisions to experience some of it. Um, I went to work for him right out of Liberty. Would sit by him in meetings and ride with him places. And, you know, we, he, he was a fun guy and really challenged me to see something bigger than what I was seeing at the time. We played a game called Six Inch Punch. We tried to sneak up on each other and punch each other in the shoulder. Um, which he's a big man, too. And uh, Was he? Oh, yeah. He was a considerable man, and, and he was, a, was an outstanding athlete. Really? And, I didn't uh, know that about him. Yeah. And uh, he, when he wasn't getting kicked out of school, but that's a different story. But one day we were in front of his house, and I was sitting in the back seat of the Suburban. He went in to get something. I rolled the window down, and I'm um, working on something. This is when I was working for him after Liberty. And uh, I hear this crack. You know, like somebody stepping on a twig and turn around to look at it. Well, he had started a six-inch punch into my shoulder. <laughs> and I put my nose where my shoulder was. <laughs> so I'm sitting in the back seat of Jerry Falwell's Suburban. The bloody nose. Gushing blood. <laughs> I mean, gushing blood. And he felt bad. I mean, he was, you know, people saw the public persona of him. Yeah. But at his heart, he was a pastor. Mm. And he loved people. Mm. He's a practical joker. And, uh, cool. and again, up until when he passed away, was just a wonderful influence on my life. Liberty, you know, a number of friends, saw a much bigger world. And my friends came from such various places and backgrounds that my, my small world in, in this little town in Montana just became bigger. It's, it's, yeah, it's probably not flattering to say about myself now, but I, I, math is a big thing for me. I do a lot of math. And I figured, it sat down the first night I was there and figured out there's more single girls here my age than there were people in my whole hometown. So that became a challenge. And uh, 
did hold the dorm nine record for one year for most dates in a night. Um, <laughs> three, by the way. So you dog. Really challenging when they all live like within two hundred yards of each other. <laughs> so, but yeah, you know, Liberty brought in things like the Vienna Boys Choir. They brought in Jerome Hines, who was the the baritone at the Metropolitan Opera. And I saw things that I didn't even come close to experiencing in my upbringing, which just expanded. And I think that's part of what college should do for you. It should expand what you're looking at. I don't think you should fill it with garbage, but Mm -hmm. you should expand your world while you're at college. And that was really my experience at Liberty. I became the alumni chairman for a few years. And uh, my middle son went back to Liberty. We get back. I was back there. Oh... It was before COVID, but not too long before COVID. And have just loved watching Dr. Falwell's vision come true. Mm. Um, so, but yeah, it was um, being around him, being challenged by him was, was a great thing and a uh, big part of my life. What did you do after that? So right out of school, I went to work for him, met my business mentor, my long lifelong mentor who's still alive named Dan Reber lives in Forest, Virginia and uh, he was who I reported to when I worked for Dr. Falwell and Dan looked at me and he said you're a, you're a talented guy you're going to work here a year and then I'm going to fire you and you're going to go get a different job so that you don't get locked into something before you have a broader experience wow Dan, true to his word, let me go. <laughs> Not really, but he actually helped me find another job. I worked for the Virginia Credit Union Association. I did a variety of roles that I was really too young to do, but he had a friend there and got me that job. And that took me up to suburban D.C. And that was my territory. I worked with credit unions in that part of the state. So... I'm laying in bed one night reading. It's about 11.15. And the phone rings. And of course, no cell phones there. It was a wall phone. And her, it was actually on the desk in my, in my bedroom. I shared an apartment with a guy. And I answered it. And uh, the voice on the other end asked if Jim Fennelson was available. I said, yeah, that's me. And I'm really curious of an 11.15 p.m. phone call. And the voice on the other end said, uh, hello, this is Tim LaHaye. And I, in my smart aleck way, said, yeah, and I'm Ronald Reagan. Who is this? And who is this, really? <laughs> <laughs> it was Tim Lay. Um, so we got past that little faux pas on my part. <laughs> and he asked me to come in and meet him the next morning in Georgetown, down you know, D.C., which from where I lived meant I needed to leave in about 20 minutes to beat the traffic, but um, didn't sleep much anyway. And he didn't say much. He just said, Dan Reber asked me to meet with you. Well, Dan was, a, you know, outside of my father, Dan had the most profound influence on my life mm-hmm. of anyone. Yeah. And uh, if Dan said I needed to do it, I was going to go do it. Yeah. And so he, um, we met, I think we met at seven o'clock in the restaurant at the Four Seasons in Georgetown. And so I didn't want to be late, so I got there early. So I, I left my house probably 4 o'clock in the morning. And I'm sitting out there, and I pull in, you know, D.C. traffic, and figure out where to park and all that stuff. And I sit in the lobby for a little bit, and then I go to the restaurant. 
I know what Tim LaHaye looks like. He doesn't know what I look like. So I walk in and I see Tim LaHaye at a, at a table talking to a guy. So I thought, I'll just wait till he's done. And, uh, you know, seven o'clock came. It was like five minutes after. And I'm thinking, you know, this is going to be uncomfortable, but I'm just going to at least go let him know I'm here. So I walked over and I said, Dr. Hey, I'm Jim Fennelson. We talked on the phone last night. I've been here, but I'll wait out in the lobby until you're done. He goes, oh, no, 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 no. This is, I wanted, I wanted you to, to talk with both of us. Okay, you know, now I'm a little embarrassed because I mm-hmm. should have just done that in the beginning. And so I'm, at this time, I'm, I'm 20, say 22 years old. And I uh, sit down and still not sure why I'm there, other than Dan Reber told me to be through Tim LaHaye. Mm-hmm. So Tim says, well, Dan Reber says, you're the answer to all my problems. This isn't good because that's an expectation I'm pretty sure I can't meet. And uh, he, he says, so he said, I'm, I'm here with Bunker and would like to interview you for a job. I haven't applied for a job, but okay. And uh, Mr. Bunker, he says, oh no, Bunker's my first name. And I went, okay. And uh, Tim goes, yeah, you know, Bunker Hunt. And uh, for those of you who don't know, one of the Hunt brothers who cornered the silver market back in those days and uh, was a billionaire before being a billionaire was popular. And so I'm now really freaked out because I've read about him. (laughs) Tim LaHaye, you know, who's one of the pedestals of Christian leaders. Yes. And he's interviewing me for a job that I haven't applied for. And I don't even know what it is. And so I'm trying to navigate this in my 22-year-old mind. And uh, I said, well, I said, Dr. LaHaye, what what is it that you're wanting me to do? And he goes, we need somebody to come and run our ministry. And 22 years old. Yeah. Dude. And I said, you know, honestly, sir, I said, you know, that's a tall order. But he goes, no. He goes, Dan Reber said you can do it. And I said, well, what is your ministry? (laughs) And uh, he explained an organization called Family Life Services. Our family seminar, sorry. And uh, so we had a discussion, and he goes, well, I'd like to offer you the job. And we hadn't talked about salary. We hadn't talked about anything. Still wasn't quite sure why Bunker Hunt was there. And I had been dating this lady, this young lady that I'd met at church. And I'm thinking, how does this all work? And then at the end, he goes, well, we'd want you to come to San Diego, where we're headquartered. And he goes, and by the way, my wife's starting this little organization called Concerned Women for America. And if you could uh, help her, I would count it as a favor. Okay, I still don't quite understand the job. <laughs> and he goes, I just need you to run the organization. He goes, I can speak, I can write, I can do all these things. I just can't do the day-to-day stuff. So I ended up taking so that essentially job. essentially it was a COO role. Yeah, maybe a little more financially than the typical COO role. Okay. Because it was the only executive role yeah but family life seminars was about a two million dollar a year operation and they were on tv and they had problems with fulfillment i mean just all kinds of stuff which dr vall would give me a good cross-section of things but i'd never really run anything like that so long story short i ended up accepting the position which then put me into a quandary with a young lady named debbie Kuntz. So Debbie had been dating my roommate, 
he kept talking about her coming over to cook. It never happened because my roommate was such a procrastinator. Good guy. Still a good guy. But he just procrastinated, which wasn't my style. And so I finally, I met her at church one day, and I said, I hear you're coming over to cook. I said, but I never see you. And she goes, well, pick a day. I said, all right, this Friday. So we did that, and she was Gary's date. I got a date, and we had dinner at our house, and she made lasagna and uh, cheesecake. So actually, this weekend, our son and daughter-in-law are coming over for lasagna. I don't know if we'll have cheesecake, but it's still pretty famous at our house. So after that night, I had bought all the groceries because my roommate never got around to it. So we had enough to do another round, and my brother was coming through town the next week. So I told Gary he needed to go find something to do on, on Friday night, and Debbie was my date, and I got a date for my brother. So things had been progressing there. So I said, well, Dr. Dr. Lee, I need to talk to this girl I'm dating. And so I went and talked to Debbie, picked her up after school. This is kind of what's happening. And she goes, well, what does that mean for us? So that was the first week in November. On November 11th, we got engaged. And I was in San Diego, first of December, starting a new job. Did that for almost five years, moved them back to, to D.C. And God gave me a great opportunity to do something that, well, the way I normally put it is, I learned a lot of things at the LaHaye's expense. But four and a half, almost five years later, Concerned Women for America had 465,000 members. Wow. It was a $7 million a year organization. And I was totally burned out. Been mm. working 90 hours a week. Oh my goodness. And just going crazy. So, I mean, it was wonderful. I met a lot of people, built a lot of relationships. I loved Tim and Bev LaHaye. They took us in like one of their kids. Mm. Um, mm. So there was a lot that went on. The ministry was deeply in debt. We went through an arbitration. We won. We helped get some of that debt gone. And when I left, we had a million dollars in the bank, and we had we all the bills were paid. Mm. Uh, but I was dead. Mm. And uh, so moved back to Montana. What drew you back there? Well, to be honest, I had sights of becoming, of running for political office. Okay. Um, during that time at Liberty, went up and, and lobbied oh, yeah. a congressman from my home district, and he was the head of the national, or the, the congressional part that did the National Endowment for the Arts. He was very pro-abortion. He was very anti-Christian, and he was very labor-backed. And so I went up there, started a business, uh, we ended up buying the local uh, Chrysler dealership, did a lot of crazy stuff. I did a lot of consulting, traveled quite a bit. But it was very comfortable for me because it was home. Mm-hmm. It was not as comfortable for Debbie because it wasn't home. Were you and back in Bozeman? Bozeman, yep. We lived between Bozeman and Belgrade. Okay. And I became deacon in my dad's church, which probably not a good idea. Where's Debbie originally from? Clearwater, Florida. Okay. She was actually born in Indiana, but they moved to Clearwater when she was one. So she grew up in Clearwater. So the town that I grew up in, like when my parents sold their house, they didn't have a key to give to the new owner. So when I broke curfew, my dad just locked the doors because none of us had a key. And that way I'd have to knock on the door and wake him up so he knew when I got home. But, you know, it was, it was typical at our house to come home, like when I was in high school, 
and find people sitting in our living room that had been there while we weren't home. That was just the way it was. Mm -hmm. And for Debbie, that was so foreign. I remember one time we were driving on the freeway and a guy in a pickup spun out, went in the ditch. And I said, we got to stop and help him. You know, it's bitterly cold. Mm -hmm. He could freeze to death before the next person comes along if he's, if he's in trouble. And she just freaked out because her dad always told her to never stop. You know, go find a police officer or something. And she grew up very, very, I wouldn't say urban, but very mm-hmm. big town. Mm-hmm. This is very small town. So it was, it was kind of uncomfortable for her. Yeah. When I ran for Congress, people would come in and clean our house while we were out on the campaign trail. They wouldn't tell anybody. They'd just come in and do it, which was wonderfully nice, but a little disturbing to my wife, you know, because people have been in my house. And it just was, it was odd for her. So anyway, got back, did some consulting, did some traveling, bought the dealership, bought a couple other companies. Uh, we kind of set up a fund to buy distressed companies, turn around and sell them. Did that uh, with several. One of the fun parts of that was with the dealership came a car rental agency. And we won the bid to provide the cars for the movie A River Ran Through It. Mm. So got to go be on the set. Debbie shared a car with Robert Redford. You know, it was, it was fun. Yeah. And that, the scene in A River Runs Through It, where he catches the big one, mm-hmm. falls in the river, is the elbow right by Squaw Creek on the Gallatin River where our church camp was. So I spent every summer at that church camp, wandered out in the same water where they shot that part of the movie. So I yeah. got to go watch that being shot, which was a lot of fun. But it, you know, the business side did well, and we continued to to grow through that. But uh, in 1988, I declared my candidacy for U.S. congressional seat in Montana, District Number Two, and we figured it would take a couple times to beat this guy. He was seven-term incumbent at the time. The same guy that you lobbied in front of. Yep. So we we went and did that. Won the primary. Lost in the general, and then a decision took that district away, so never got a chance to run again. But it was a wonderful experience, met a lot of great people. Debbie and I just got to do that together. It was a 47,000-square-mile district, and Debbie drove, and I would work and, and write, sometimes sleep in the car on the way to the next event. So give you a funny thing that'll tie back to my dad. So my dad and I often clashed over what I was going to do because I think for a long time in his heart, he, he wanted me to be a pastor. So I remember I got a letter from him while I was running that gave me some cautions. I later got a letter apologizing and showing support. So he was, he was a good writer and that was, that was kind of typical of our relationship. But I called my dad and said, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go speak at the AFL-CIO convention in Montana, which was in Butte, where the miners were. And he goes, oh, I'd like to go with you to that one. And I said, why would you want to go with to that one? He goes, might be the last time I see you alive. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I was the first Republican candidate to speak there for decades. Yeah. So <clears throat> anyway, survived that. One of my dad's Bible studies, 
the president of the Montana AFL-CIO, who I was with that day, who I responded to his invitation to come speak, joined one of my dad's Bible studies, saying, if your kid's willing to come talk to the unions as a Republican, he goes, I got some questions about eternity. I can't think of anybody I'd rather talk about eternity with than a guy who raised a kid who would do that. Um, so he joined my dad's Bible study, which was Aww. a lot of fun. That's cool. Yeah. So ran for Congress, didn't win. We stayed in Montana, sold the dealership, and then came back to D.C. to help a friend who had bought a business there. And then my mentor, Dan Reber, called and he needed some help with a business he had taken back. So we did that. That ended us back in Lynchburg. And so... While we were in Lynchburg, our middle son, Stephen, who was then our youngest son, developed uh, respiratory problems triggered by mold. And so he would go into acute respiratory distress. Mm. We crashed the ER a couple times with him turning blue Mm -hmm. and said, can't do this. Got to do something different. And so we ended up taking him to a doctor and they said, you either got to find dry climate or you got to give him these shots every day. And said, we'll find a dry climate, which brought us to Colorado Springs. What year was that? Uh, 1993. Okay. So, you know, as I I look back on my life, you know, I hear guys sometimes on these podcasts who, you know, you know, God gave me this plan for my life. I just kind of went from thing that God threw in front of me to the thing that God threw in front of me next. I'm the same. I I can't say that there's this grand scheme that I have seen since I was seven, you know, because my grand scheme went out the window really early. So it was a great move for us to come here. You know, we, we treasure this community and have thoroughly enjoyed it. Debbie is a nationally certified sign language interpreter. Mm -hmm. She's done a lot here. She helped start the interpreter training program at Pikes Peak Community College, Hmm. um, taught there for a while. She currently teaches in in Air Academy High School, teaches language there, uh, sign language, and um, just has had a profound influence on the deaf and hard of hearing community here in town uh, in a positive way. She's still the highest, I think, the highest ranked person in the pecking order. She's the youngest person ever to have been nationally certified as an interpreter. So when president either party comes to town, she gets called first. Often doesn't do that, so other people have that opportunity. But she's interpreted for all the presidents since Ford, other than one. You know, and she's just she's gotten me into a lot of fun places. You know, she gets these all access passes, so I go along, hang out, <laughs> let her work, and I go play. One of the fun ones, she was the she headed up the access for the disabled at the 1988 Republican Convention in New Orleans. So she had an all-access pass. So I was sitting on the floor, having introduced Sandy Patty to the Indiana delegation, with a guy named Dan Quayle. When two guys in suits came up and asked him to go meet with H.W. Uh, Bush. Yeah to be asked to be vice president. (laughs) (laughs) I'll tell you one other funny story there. So she's up there and she's interpreting and yeah, I got to go back and give her her pass so she can go to the bathroom and you know, a few minor things like that along the way. And she goes, I think there's a guy sitting over next to president Reagan who is deaf because he's watching me all the time. 
So I'm trying to be coy, you know, sneak a, sneak a peek. Sitting where? Right, right next to Mrs. Reagan. You know, on one side, it's Ronald Reagan. I know you know him. The other side is Frank Sinatra. And uh, she goes, he's been watching me like crazy. <laughs> sure he was. <laughs> yeah, the I'm ladies' going, man that now, he was. Yeah, now I'm uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> but she's, she's done a lot of things. She worked with Sandy Patty. Uh, for those of you who knew Sandy's um, Love in Any Language song, when she went to do that on the Johnny Carson show, she came to D.C., holed up in a hotel room with Debbie for two days, and learned the sign language that she used on The Tonight Show mm. when she debuted that song with Johnny Carson. Mm. So Debbie is a wonderful, loving person who um, has uh, been a mother, a pastor to many deaf uh, over mm. the years and has a great heart for that. So one thing I did kind of skip over in D.C. times was uh, I did get a chance to meet privately with Ronald Reagan twice, actually three times, but twice that were very personal, mm. and uh, which was a wonderful experience. And God's just given us some really touching, unbelievable opportunities to see people. One of the clients in our marketing company was Johnny Erickson Tata. Um, got to travel through Europe with Johnny. Um, She's an incredible do, do lady. things with Johnny Her and, and Ken. Ken. Yeah. They are just, they're an incredible couple. Yeah. Unfortunately, just... when we were spending more time with them, I had never smoked a cigar, but Ken's a cigar smoker. And Is he? I, I should have, should have taken advantage of that, but I had not quite overcome all of my fundamentalism by that point. Yeah. So, but I've kind of rambled on, so I'll let you ask a question. How cool is it for a small town pastor's kid in Montana to have had all of those experiences for you to be sitting now where you are? Are you in awe? Because I, I grew up small town, Wisconsin, and I look back at where I've gone in the 23 years I've been here in Colorado Springs, and I'm just, I'm blown away. Mm -hmm. To me, it's very humbling. And there are times, I used to talk with Johnny about this quite a bit. I used to say, there's two things I used to tell Johnny is, I wish Debbie could be here. Because a lot of times we were doing things where she was you know, taking care of the kids or whatever. But I also looked at her and I said, you know, I'm not sure if this is real. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for 13 and a half years, I had dinner once a month with Johnny Erickson Tata, and the rule was we couldn't talk about work. And the influence of that on my life, the influence of Johnny on my kids' lives, I mean, had I sat and wrote my plan, it wouldn't have even come up. But God had a plan that allowed for that to happen. To be able to sit in the White House, you know, which growing up in Montana was a world away, but not just to be on the tour, but to sit in a room alone with the President of the United States mm -hmm. and have a conversation. Mm -hmm. I still, I look at, the, I mean, I got the picture on the wall in my, in my office. And sometimes I just turn around and look at it and just, you know, did that really happen? <laughs> you know, to work with Tim and Bev LaHaye. Yeah. You know, I know you did a lot of work with Dr. Dobson, you know, 
when I was deciding to run for Congress, I sat in Dr. Dobson's hotel room at the Mayflower in D.C., and he prayed for me and for God's direction and God's blessing. You know, I couldn't have imagined it happened growing up. My world was very small. And I say Jerry Falwell helped make my world big. God really helped make my world big. Mm. He used Jerry to do it. But, you know, the sequence of things and how little I had to do with them coming about is phenomenal. And as I look back, one of the axioms that we've always had in the businesses that we've bought and sold and participated in and ran and whatever was that God's principles work wherever you apply them. And I think in answer specifically to your question, the principle was that God asked me to be available and I stayed available and the things he brought into be available to do were so far beyond my ability to imagine, let alone my plan remind me of how much he cares for me. And I hope that story reminds people of how much he cares for them because there's no way it's not me. It's him. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't deserve any of it. It's humbling. You know, there's been hard times, but it's been phenomenally exciting. When I was a kid, we always had people come in and give testimonies of the church being saved from this life of being a drug dealer or a gang member or, you know, whatever. They had had this wild story of sin that God redeemed them from. And I used to look at that and think, you know, do I have to do that to have a testimony? You know, often they stayed in our house, so you, you get to see them up close and personal. And I thought, looking back now, you don't have to. The key is the same. All they were doing was responding to God. And I got to do that without having what they described as the baggage of those previous mm-hmm. things, mm-hmm. whatever they were. And um, as we mentioned, uh, I didn't grow up charismatic or, you know, with you know, a lot of my brothers and sisters talk about prophetic words. I've never really had that experience in my life. But I can't deny, nor would I want to, that God has been there at every single turn and he is faithful Mm. sometimes I'm stupid but (laughs) he is faithful so when Debbie and I started having kids I'm a goal person you know here's our goal here's what we're going to do so we sat down and we talked what is success when we raise our kids and we decided on two things one is that they love Jesus and that they find their passion and pursue it And I would say that my passion has been to do business. The pursuit of it, God has blessed with some unbelievable opportunities. You know, Blackaby talked about find where God's working and go join him there. And if there was a plan, that was it. To look where God's working. How encouraging is it for you? to see the way in which the church seems to be awakening to this idea that being a pastor isn't the ultimate call in the Christian faith, but if your call is to business, 
that's God's call on your life. And, and the church is starting to awaken to esteeming that call and pouring into the business leaders. I would say that was my struggle that brought me into a relationship with, with Jerry Falwell was I felt a strong calling to business and I didn't hear Christian leaders affirming it. Yeah. Including Jerry. Now, the tenderness of his heart that I liked was he would listen to that and he made some changes because as you hear him, as he goes on, as liberty grows about being young champions for Christ in every area. Now, that was always part of his vision. Yeah. But he really enunciated it more as that vision continued to grow. And, you know, you look at where Liberty students are in the world today in their positions. God has answered that part of his vision. But it came from a determination to not just be the best in creating preacher boys, which are important, which are a great calling, Mm -hmm. but to affirm the fact that parts of the body need each other. And we're specifically instructed not to say that we can do it without the other. So currently in my career path, I put that in air quotes, I'm president of an organization called Pastor Serve. And, you know, I walk walk along with those guys, but I, you know, these guys can be much, much better at what they do if somebody with the skill sets that a business or administrator has Mm -hmm can help them do that. And as a business guy or an administrator, they're going to do things that I can't do from my position. But I love your question because as I look back over my life, I have been able to share Christ with people who would never talk to a pastor. Mm -hmm. But I think the, the flip side of that recognition by the church that those callings are important is that we need to live our our Christianity in those callings. It's not good enough to say, well, I'm in business to get money to give to these things. I'm in business. I should give money. I should be generous. I love the generosity movement. But I should also share Christ with the people I come into contact with. You know, I've, I've got one lady who was a vendor for me from 1981 to 2000 and probably 12, I think was the last time we did business. I got to share Christ with her. And she would never darken the door of a church. She would never listen. But as my kids were around her, as I introduced her to Johnny, as we walked through life and honored each other, when her brother died, she would call and talk and wonder about eternity. Now, I've never had the privilege of of leading her to Christ. I don't know. But that wasn't my part of the deal. My part of the deal was to be there to share Christ and to talk about his redemptive plan and how it could apply to her. And the number of times I've been able to do that as a business guy are phenomenal to people who would never, who would discount, actually, hearing from a pastor. Mm. So I think that's the answer to your question. Pastor serve. Yes. Talk about pastor serve because that's something that is very near and dear to my heart. Yep. In my 15 years working for doc, 
I spent a number of years as the editor for the monthly tape series that Focus produced yep. called Pastor to Pastor. HB London was a mentor and a dear, dear great friend. Guy. And oh, I miss that guy so much. Yep. He was such a great dude. Well, one of your friends and fellow cigar smokers from those days, Wade Brown, mm-hmm. who worked with uh, HB, is on the Pastor Serve team now. I love Wade. So. I got acquainted with Pastor Serve when Jimmy Dodd, the founder, started speaking at our church to fill in. I love Jimmy. He's also, I, I love he the is. fact he's a Packer fan too. Yeah. Oh, he's, so see, everybody that he used to speak at Woodman Valley Chapel here in town, and he would tease Broncos fans because he's from Kansas City yeah. about the Chiefs. And everybody, you know, oh, yeah, he's a Chiefs fan. He's a Packers fan. Oh, yeah. And there's a great story behind it. If you ever get a chance to hear his story of why he's a Packers fan, that's worth the tale. So got to know Jimmy. And obviously, my dad's a pastor. My brother's a pastor. I tease people. See, I'm the black sheep of the family. Uh, I didn't go into the family business, you know. But, you know, when Debbie and I went to our first marriage retreat, you know, marriage enhancement retreat deal, I take a test, and the guy comes and flops it down, mine down in front of me, and he goes, because I've never seen this before. And I said, seen what? You know, it's in front of the whole group. So he goes, "Uh, yeah, you you scored a negative on mercy. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad you announced that to the group. Um, (laughs) But I wasn't built to be a pastor. I don't think I would be a good pastor. So through Jimmy, through Wade, I, I went on Wade's advisory board here in the Rocky Mountain area um, and then was asked to be on the board, national board for, for Pastor Serve. And I did that and did that for a few years and then came to a, a point where we were going to change, got done with a project, business project. And Debbie and I typically, you know, we'd ask people to pray for us during that time when we'd go from project to project. Because if you don't have this grand plan, it's kind of you really want to know that you're hearing from God for what's next. Mm-hmm. And uh, this time, talked to 10 different couples and, and people, and we said, uh, eight out of the 10 said, you should return to ministry. My answer to that was, you haven't even prayed yet, so I'm not going to listen to you. <laughs> Two of those eight said, you should help pastor serve. And that's how I found my way to Pastor Serve. So I currently serve as the president and COO. And Pastor Serve was designed to keep pastors healthy so that they can fulfill their calling. Mm. And I do believe that the church is God's plan A. And I think a healthy church needs a healthy leader. And I think in many ways, the, we, the way we look at and treat pastors sets them up for failure. Because we create an unrealistic expectation and we create demands that are not humanly possible to meet. I saw that in my own father's ministry. So my dad was bivocational for the first part of his ministry. He would work a 40-hour week. He would then pastor, and he was an old-fashioned pastor. They were out visiting in a church member's home, usually five nights a week. So we didn't see a lot of them. A lot of my memories of my dad when I was little was I would see him reading. When I went to bed, I would see him reading when I got up. And I didn't see a lot of them between those two times, uh, which is not good. Now, my dad made an effort and did well. You know, when I bought that Mustang, he got up in church the next day and said, before today's sermon, I want to address three things. One, I told him he could buy it. Two, I have driven it. Three, 
it was a lot of fun. Now turn in your Bible too. And he answered 400 questions at once. You know, so my dad, my dad protected us well, but we, we didn't get a lot of him. Mm-hmm. Too many of my pastor kid friends are outside the faith today because of that relationship. So pastor served as coaching, which is proactive, how to stay healthy, how to remain in your calling, how to find balance. We tell pastors that their primary ministry is their family, their secondary ministry is their church. So if they have to leave some activity at their secondary ministry to perform their primary ministry, they should do that, and the church should support them. Not all elders, deacons, or church members agree with that, but that's what we tell them. We coach hundreds of pastors every year, some of them year to year, some of them just for a year, depends on their circumstances and situations. We coach people through transitions, taking a new position, leaving a position, looking for a new position, all of those things. And the key that we provide in that is we provide a confidential, safe place for them to process and on occasion rant. So I think the key problem that affects pastors is isolation. Mm-hmm. And isolation causes you to do things that you wouldn't normally do because you're looking to medicate something in some way. So you drink too much, you do porn, you, however that's acted out. The opposite of isolation is community. And so in some ways we provide safe community for pastors. We do everything from peacemakers to help with conflict resolution, Elders to pastors, pastors to pastors, church members to pastors. We do we do a lot of that. We do retreats. We do we speak at conferences. We do those kind of things. Uh, we got twenty four members on our team, and each of them bring a different skill set and and background to it. And uh, we try to plug them in in the most effective way. And the third thing we do is crisis care. That has two legs to it. One is the obvious. Pastor gets himself into a crisis, yeah. moral failing, financial conflict with elders that leads to a leadership crisis. More and more in, in the world in which we live, toxic leadership issues, which you've seen a lot of in the papers, yeah. are part of that as well. The second is we go in after um, natural disasters and we raise money and we do things for pastors. So as we look at the statistics... After a natural disaster, let's just say the, um, the flood in, in Houston after the hurricane, roughly half of the pastors in that community will be gone within three years. Really? The pastoral suicide and divorce rates start to mimic the culture mm. because pastors give and give and give, never ask for anything. Jimmy has a, has a saying, he says they're the first in line to give and they're the last in line to ask. And so we go in and we sit down and say, what do you need? And give them permission to say no to some things that are being asked of them. Make sure they stay true to their family. You know, you can do, you can do anything for a season. The problem is these seasons after natural disasters turn into decades. And, you know, there's still ramifications of Katrina in New Orleans. But, you know, a lot of pastors went there. There were several who committed suicide. It's tragic to watch. It's hard on their families. A lot of them in the smaller churches, financially, it's just not viable. Like in Puerto Rico after the hurricane, you know, there's, there's over 100 pastors who have left the island. Mm. 
So at a time when your community needs spiritual leadership, probably more than any other time, spiritual leadership leaves because we burn them out or they allow themselves to be burned out, however you want to look at that. So we try to provide an advocacy and a challenge to pastors to live in a healthy way that allows them to fulfill that calling. Our model is we never say no to any pastor. It's financially challenging. Some pastors are able to afford to pay us to do it, not all. And so we raise money to be able to have that kind of impact in pastors' lives. And we have recently started more of an emphasis on pastor spouses. I look at my parents who are in their middle 80s, and being a pastor's wife was far tougher on my mother than being a pastor was on my father. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd love to. Debbie and I do try to do things for pastor's kids in the churches we attend. We've tried to figure out how to do that on a national scale. That's that's tough. We're still praying and looking for ways to do that. But, you know, my encouragement is if you're listening to this podcast and you are a member of a church, do some practical things to help your pastor. If you need ideas, Jimmy wrote a book called Pastors Are People Too that is full of ideas uh, that will help you help and not hurt without meaning to hurt. Just a simple one especially during these COVID times, just jot your pastor a note of encouragement. You can email it, you can mail it, you can text it however you communicate with your pastor. I remember a pastor at a church that I attended um, was sent him a note one morning and said, uh, thinking about you, praying about you. And uh, he said, the timing on this couldn't be better. I received more criticism yesterday Mm. than I have in my entire pastoral career. Mm. And just to have a single word of thankfulness and encouragement means the world to me. I'm trying sitting here trying to write my sermon and I couldn't get my mind off all the criticism. Mm. So don't discount the small things, but look for fun, big things to do. Mm. And, you know, I think a lot of times people think, well, will have the pastor and their family over for dinner. That's nice, and that may be appropriate. But try to do things that don't take more of their time. And, you know, well, I'm going to take my pastor to a ball game. Well, that's great. But if you sit there and talk to him about things about the church during the whole ball game, that's not time off for him. So make sure that it's time off for him. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, like Debbie and I have been fortunate. We've been able to give some time and vacation spots where we own property to pastors. We try to do that every year. It doesn't have to be big. It can be small. It just needs to be encouraging, and there never should be a but. I loved your sermon on Sunday, but, because but pretty well negates it. If you need to have that conversation, have that separate from the encouragement. Mm. So don't put a barb in it. It's funny. I listened to some talk shows and some talk shows. I go, you know, okay, you're agreeing with me, but, and the but is why you called. So don't be that guy. But be practical. Think about their family. Think about their kids. Just be kind. In my reading this morning, I wish I would have noted who it was, but they quoted a person. I wish I, I, wish I could give the attribution for it, but they said uh, the quote was, be kinder than is necessary. And I thought, how many times am I kind? But I'm not, 
kinder than is necessary. And that, mm. that's causing me to think today from my reading this morning. Ooh. I found out recently, very recently, you are either the owner or one of the owners of Magnum Shooting Center here in Colorado Springs. I am. How'd you get into that? Well, a group of <clears throat> seven of us got together and had this idea, and um, I had done, you know, worked with starting businesses or buying businesses and structuring businesses. So, uh, came in was kind of the CFO for the first while. I don't have any day to day now, but one of the original investors and currently on the board, um, one of the two operating managers uh, for Magnum Shooting Center. So we are a membership club that is open to the public as well, but members get preference. We have about 9,000 members here in Colorado Springs areas. I've just opened our second location. Uh, you know, I grew up in Montana. Um, we always hunted. Yeah. So I grew up mostly around hunting rifles. Never really shot handguns or shotguns until I was an adult. But enjoy the shooting sports. And uh, Magnum has been a big project. There's been some great people who are part of it. Todd, our general manager, has made it work. A great gunsmith in his own right. Josh, who was on the USA shooting team, you know, he's... He's got much more gun expertise than I do. Kim Shugart, who, who does the marketing. We, we, we just had a group of people who each had skills that helped get this started. And God has blessed it, and our community has supported it. And uh, it's a blast, and it comes with some really fun toys. <laughs> Jim Fennelson, let's get to rapid-fire questions. All right. Hey everyone, before we get to the rapid fire segment, I wanted to talk about a way that you as a listener can support the show and the growth of Holy Smokes by becoming a monthly supporter at patreon.com slash holy smokes. Patreon is a support platform and for as little as $5 a month, you can get bonuses like ad-free versions of these podcast episodes, Holy Smoke swag like t-shirts and more. That's patreon.com slash holy smokes. We're looking to get 40 Patreon supporters at an average of $10 a month. And once we hit that, we'll be able to pay for all the costs for hosting, editing, writing, posting. I won't be paying for that out of my pocket or through the volunteering of my own personal time. And as we grow that number to 100 and 150, 200 patrons, we'll be able to do two shows a week, hire a part-time assistant and web developer, record on location and around the world and more. I want to visit groups and get those stories from so many of you listeners that I hear from. I want to go to Seattle and I want to go to Dallas and I want to go to Charleston, South Carolina and I want to go to Kentucky and Chicago and Phoenix, Atlanta, DC, Charlotte, back to Southern California and more. We want to help grow your groups and plant new ones for those of you in areas without active groups. So can you help us out? Become a regular supporter at patreon.com slash holy smokes. There's a link in the show notes. That's patreon.com slash holy smokes. Or if you want to make a one-time tax-deductible gift, go to paypal.me slash holy smokes club. That's paypal.me slash holy smokes club. And both of those links are in the show notes. Thanks. Rapid fire. 
Fire. Here. How's that stick treating you? I really like it. You know, I haven't gotten much of it, but it doesn't have... Sometimes, sometimes when you smoke, or when I smoke cigars, I get kind of a burn at the end. Mm-hmm. This is really smooth, and that's what I really like. I tend to go to towards mild, more mild or mediums mm-hmm. because I find that more often there. Mm-hmm. I don't particularly enjoy just the really... Maduro's. Yeah, robust. just grab you. Yeah. And I think part of it is I don't smoke that much. So it's probably my tender palate. When did you first get into cigars? It was about 10 years ago, maybe 12. I was in a small group that I started for CEOs and business owners. There was 10 of us, one of whom was Tim McDonald. And one of the guys had a plant down in the Dominican Republic. So we went as a group, went down and put some water purification systems in down there. Mm-hmm. And we were hanging out. And uh, one of the, Seth, one of the guys in the group, had asked me, he goes, so how come you don't smoke and how come you don't drink? And as I thought about that, my answer really was because my dad told me not to. And going back to that whole fundamentalism mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. And Seth, who's kind man who lives here in town said if you ever want to try it i'd like to show you how and keep you safe and not not let you do stupid things and so i'd started doing some drinking we were down there problem is you know with a group like that all you drink is top shelf and uh so my very first cigar was on a beach in the dominican republic smoking a cuban Tim McDonald was there, some other guys. And uh, so I would say Tim was among the guys who got me into it. But I really didn't have a place to do it until I got into Holy Smokes. Mm. And, you know, I'm I'm not one of these guys who will sit out on my deck and smoke by myself. Not either. But, man, do I crave this. Yeah, this hit me. And when you ask about one of the questions, which I'm sure is coming, about Holy Smokes, that's going to be one of the things. Favorite cigar? You know, I am such a novice at cigars. I don't know that I have a favorite. I do like mild to medium. And I will smoke pretty much anything that Steve Grison, Kay Harimene, or several other guys around here recommend. (laughs) So I've not put the time in to study and really know enough about them to have a favorite. Most expensive cigar you've smoked? I probably don't know because some guy probably gave, gave it, it to, to me. Yeah. Um, the most I've paid for one's probably 20 bucks. Where's your go-to place to get your smokes? About the only place I have bought. Oh, I bought some from Thompson. I bought some from um, Cigar Bid. I would say probably now most of what I get is from Cigar Bid. What's your favorite liquid pairing with your smoke? Oh, I'm a Blanton's guy. If it had been later in the day, I was going to bring a bottle and split it with you, but uh, we shouldn't really do a whole bottle between the two of us, but, <laughs> but at, least, at least share it with you. But yeah, I, I like bourbons, and uh, Blanton's is probably my favorite. Most interesting person you've ever met through cigars? Through cigars. I hear Steve Grison's story, like when I listen to the podcast, and... It's just a fascinating guy and so real. 
Um, oh, yeah. He's special. Kay is who really brought me into Holy Smokes. And uh, the more layers of his story you unpack, the better. But just like a couple of weeks ago, I was in Nashville. We had a Holy Smokes over with Kay. I saw and the I, pictures. Yeah, I sit down, and a gentleman named Chad. Chad Jeffers. Yeah, sat next to Chad. And He's a great dude. I can't know, wait to get to Nashville to talk to him. We're talking, and, you know, what, what do you do, Chad? Uh, I play guitar. Oh, professionally? Yeah. As we're talking, you know, he's not flaunting it. He's the lead guitarist for um, Carrie Underwood. Underwood. Yeah. You know, so I, I turn on Sunday Night Football and I watch it. And, you know, he flashes on the screen. And I'm thinking, you know, the odds of me meeting Chad Jeffers yeah. outside of Holy Smokes, probably not a chance. But I will tell you this I don't think I have met an uninteresting person in Holy Smokes. True. Most memorable cigar experience. I would say it was probably that first one down in down in the Dominican with a group of guys. Yeah, um, we had put in some water systems and uh, we were sharing life together, and it was kind of a breakthrough from my background to take the risk to try one. And yeah, there have been a lot of memorable ones, but I would say that one's the top. Marvel or DC. Oh, my kids are going to kill me either way I go. Um, I'm probably more of a Marvel. Star Wars or Star Trek? Star Wars, easy. Favorite food? Ooh, I, I like good food. So there are a number of things that I like. I, I, I enjoy French cooking. I enjoy my wife's lasagna, as you heard previously on the podcast. Yeah. I'll get that coming up in two days. Looking forward to that. But I, I would have to say, everything else aside, a good prime steak has to be the top. Dogs, cats, neither or both? Both. I uh, grew up with cats. We've had dogs uh, in our house. My wife is not really a cat person, so that kind of eliminated that for us. But uh, if I was younger, I would have said cats. And having had dogs, I'd say both. Nickname, growing up or in college? You know, I really didn't have one. I mean, technically, Jim is a nickname from James, um, but ne never really picked one up. What's one unusual fact that few people know about you? <laughs> Just one, huh? Yeah, I would say unusual fact is did a um, humanitarian aid effort in Costa Rica in the middle 80s. And uh, I think the statute of limitations has run out, but traded money with Contras and, and uh, <laughs> you know, did, did a lot of things. Um, unfortunately, one of the things that part of that experience was saw some people assassinated and mm. um, really impacted my, I, I had a very American view of the world till I did that. Mm. Are you a reader? I am. Favorite one to three books not titled the Holy Bible. You know, I, I knew this one was coming, so that's that's. I've had a little time to think about it. As a kid, I enjoyed the Count of Monte Cristo. Ooh, yes. And consequently, the movie became a rite of passage that I did with each of my three boys. 
I just, the story of redemption, of forgiveness, of betrayal, the character development. Jim Caviezel is one of my favorite actors. Okay, so it was the newer version of, that was a great film. I've I've seen both of them, but the newer one is the one that I showed my boys. Nice. The production value and stuff is just. It was a great film. Yeah, and Caviezel, in any role I've seen him in, has been marvelous. But in that role, I lost myself in it. Yes. I am particularly biased, but um, I, I like Johnny's books and her Johnny's story, the epilogue to her original autobiography called The God I Love. Is um, matter of fact, Debbie and I are thinking about rereading that. Do you have a life scripture or a scripture that kind of like is one that you consistently go back to and it's kind of like, that's... Yeah, so two things I've always struggled with in my life is pride and anger. And... I was really dealing with that when I went to college, and I picked out a life verse, which uh, was John three thirty. He must increase, I must decrease, and it's you know it's John the Baptist speaking. But that has just been something because normally when I'm about to get in trouble, that's the thing I need to remember. Mm. So that has been it, and and just anecdotally, I won an award at the end of my time at Liberty. And I'd never really told anybody that that was a verse that meant a lot to me. And on the bottom of that award was, was that, that verse. Nice. So that cemented it for me. What practically have you done to help with your, the anger? One is I moved out of D.C. <laughs> I got out of politics. No, it's, it's ongoing. Because I so, guarantee you there are people listening right now that they're like, yeah, I want to know what Jim does. Maybe there's a lesson in there that I can apply to my life. I try never to be the first person to speak. Ooh, that's a good one. Because if I get, I mean, as you could tell from today's podcast, I don't have any problem talking. <laughs> but if I've got my ire up and I get going, my anger feeds on my anger. And if I get into that cycle, I can be destructive to people sometimes myself, but more to other people. And I would say when I really came to grips with it, although I struggled with it early, was being a father. Mm. And the practical thing is, I mentioned this about my father, I get quiet and go away until I know that it's not out of anger. And I tried to do that with my boys. I wasn't didn't achieve sinless perfection for some reason. But the practical thing is I, I need I get quiet because if I can wrestle with it in my brain rather than on my tongue, you know, the book of James talks about the destruction of the tongue, that being my name. You know, my dad, my dad was pretty strict, pretty driven. I mean, we would memorize books mm. of scripture. And uh, I remember one time, probably the angriest I ever was with one of my children. I stopped and said, we're going to both go read the book of James and come back and talk about this. Mm. Ooh. That's powerful. Because I needed it as much as he needed it. Mm. If you could be any animal, what would you be? I would probably be a mountain lion. Mm. I just think that that stealth and that impact and that motion towards a uh, 
towards a goal. Mountain lions don't waste a lot of stuff, energy included. Do you have any goals for this next year in 21? <laughs> yeah, have it not be 2020. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so we are in the process of becoming, of learning how to become grandparents. So Debbie and I are working on how to be, be intentional in the impact we want on our grandchildren's lives. Debbie, I think, is coming to a time when she's going to retire um, so I just want to make sure we're, we're ready for that. And it, COVID kind of delayed a little bit some of our goals that coming into 2021, which is not unusual for anyone, but I would like to figure out how to be impactful in this next stage of life and have better balance for family and for things like holy smokes. That's cool. Are you an early riser, a night owl? or I am a night owl, always have been. Uh, my wife's an early riser. I can do it. I can have the discipline to do it. Mm -hmm. But <clears throat> if I just go with my normal rhythm, I kind of come alive again at about 10, 10.30. And uh, it's sometimes, if I, if I go to bed, then it's just, it's hard for me to turn my brain off and go to sleep. If you could live anywhere, where would that be? You know, honestly, because we can live anywhere, I would say it's Colorado Springs. I will be honest and say that on a cold day like today, having part of our year be someplace warmer is probably in our future. But we have had many opportunities to move and... Um, we, we just feel like we're right where God wants us. Mm. What's your greatest strength and what's your greatest weakness? Greatest weakness would be pride and anger. Greatest strength, I would say, is to not get terribly swayed in crisis. So a friend of mine who lives here in town, we were in a building that there was a small fire in. Mm -hmm. And uh, his comment afterwards was, he goes, the frickin' building's on fire, and Fennelson's telling people where to go, what to do, and he never shouted at him once. Ooh, that's cool. So you asked previously about one of the things for anger, one of the things I've really worked on not raising my voice. Hmm. So when I raise my voice, either there is significant physical danger or I know I'm on a bad track. Mm. Mm. That's good. Who's the first person you think of when you hear the word successful? Probably Dan Reber. Mm. Tell us about him. So Dan, Dan was my first boss out of college. Yeah. Um, my mentor, my good friend. Dan has had several thriving businesses, but uh, he had five girls. They all love Jesus. He's got, I think it's 23 or 24 grandchildren now who are all loving the Lord. But mm. Dan probably modeled for me more the calm in the storm than anybody. Ooh. And I think without wanting recognition, he has probably helped more people than any single person I've ever known. And I think that's success. Ooh. What do you do for self-care, to rest, to recharge? I am not good at it. 
Come on, dude. You're the president of Pastor Serve. I know. You work on what you work on, right? I have been kind of a schizophrenic serial entrepreneur over my life. And whenever I have downtime, I fill it. Been trying to be more purposeful, especially after the boys are up and out now, of spending time with Debbie, doing things with Debbie that are not business related. And this may short circuit one of your upcoming questions, but I can't answer this without saying what Holy Smokes has meant to me in the last couple of years. A year and a half ago, well, a year and three quarters ago now, I was misdiagnosed and told I had the flu when I had an infection. Mm. Because of that, my infection went septic. I remember that. And I was probably realistically two days from being dead by the time we got it figured out. And my son, my oldest son, who's a doctor, I credit him. I mean, he saw things in me. He pushed. He cajoled. He carried me into the ER. He did a lot of things. And uh, it makes you wonder. Now, I'm not the only one who's had those kind of experiences. I'm not pretending that it's something unique to me. But then about six months later, seven months later, I ended up back in the hospital with um, a pulmonary embolism which they now believe was probably COVID. And at the end of those two, I, for the f- probably the first time in my life, wondered if there was a future. And through that, needing to isolate because of my lung issues with COVID, did the thing that we tell people not to do. I really isolated. And... Okay, here are many kept after me. Come, come. Doc says I can't smoke cigars yet. Come anyway. And I credit him a lot for his persistence. But in this very room that we're sitting in, I found a lot of the way to climb out of that. Mm. And so being more spontaneous, I, I tend to plan and fill up every minute. But being more spontaneous and being more in community probably goes back to my goals for 2021 and what holy smokes has really meant to me you the people who sit in these chairs that we're looking at here steve grison i mean k yale all of those guys have really probably pulled me back and i told a group of guys that i met with in nashville i said you know what's what's exciting for you in 2021 my exciting for me is that I again see things that are in the future tense rather than seeing things in a past tense. Mm. We've talked about it in bits, but what has Holy Smokes meant to you and your spiritual journey? I know it's meant community. Right. What else? Anything else? Um, I think it has reminded me that although... I feel like I've pulled away from my fundamentalist roots in a good way. That there are a lot of people, a lot of good Christian people from a lot of traditions that I have not taken advantage of knowing and letting speak into my life and hearing their story. Mm. And I just want to commend you that you know, part of that for me during this isolation of COVID was listening to podcasts 
including the Holy Smokes podcast, and hearing these guys' stories and gal stories that are just a reminder to me of how marvelous God is and how many ways he works and how much I limit him based on my, excuse me, either understanding of him or my closed-mindedness about how he works has artificially limited my life. And holy smoke, sitting around with a group of people with these broad, varied backgrounds has refreshed my soul and reminded me of how big the world is. Mm. And, you know, we've sat in this room and heard people who are going into closed countries. We've sat in this room and we've heard about people who are, you know, talking about risking everything. We've sat in this room and heard people weep as they've been betrayed or mistreated by oftentimes other Christians. You know, we've sat in this room and, and walked through part of your losing your wife. You know, I, I would say the result of my being a pastor's kid kind of emotionally stunted me because I would bottle stuff up. Mm-hmm. And I was headed back that way and watching the personalities, the sto- hearing the stories, and observing the love of Christ in the people that come to a Holy Smokes gathering has refreshed my spirit in a way that I would be a little afraid if it hadn't. Mm. Wow. All right, last two questions. Okay. If you could have a Holy Smoke with any three people throughout history, living or deceased, who would they be? Can't name Jesus. Yeah, I, I, I hate limitations. I try to bust <laughs> through limitations. So it would be a much, much bigger group. But anyway, I would like to talk to Abraham. Ooh, that's the first one. Abraham was a fantastically successful business guy. Yeah who God asked to do something absolutely bizarre. And he advocated for others. He was generous. He was sinful. He was, I'm going to guess, somewhat nervous about things. And he was a great leader of a large number of people. I would find him fascinating. Second would probably be Ronald Reagan again. Mm. I met with him when I was pretty young. I I would love to have more conversation. Now at this point in your life. Yeah, with with better perspective on my my part. And more freedom on his part to be open. So I knew this question was coming, so I really, I knew I was going to do those two. And then the third one, I'm thinking, man, who would I like to go I would probably do someone with a sports background and um, probably the guy that, one of the two guys that would come to mind would either be Jim Thorpe or Jesse Owens. Ooh, two of my favorite athletes all time. Yeah. Just what they overcame. Yeah. What they had to stand up against just to be an athlete. Yes. And, you know, the little bit that I've been able to read about them, but primarily the pictures that I saw of them. And their, their countenance, their determination, their, after all they went through to have extreme joy, and I know there must have been extreme pain, and yes. I'd love to hear more about that. Ooh, I like those two. I like all of them. That's so, good. 
Like I said, it'd be a big group. But. <laughs> <laughs> Last question. If we were to meet one year from today and I got a bottle of Blanton's and we're sharing it, not, not splitting it, but sharing it. <laughs> <laughs> what are we celebrating? I think for me, it would be celebrating having a future tense mm. because I lost it for a while. Mm. Right now I'm enjoying that so much, but I think it's still limited by COVID, by the restrictions of COVID. But um, because yeah, I'm 61 years old and I've always thought about life in the terms of 75 to 80. And I just think the freedom to think about that again is what I'm celebrating. And I think I'll still be celebrating it a year from now. I am so glad that God is not done with you, my man. Me too. Thank you. Jim Fennelson. Thanks for being on the Holy Smokes podcast. Happy to do it. I will say one last thing. Right. Um, I plan to give some money to help this podcast be more broadly available. Thank you. I would really recommend to those who listen to do it. It doesn't have to be a huge commitment. It doesn't have to be even a long-term commitment. But if these podcasts have spoken to you like they've spoken to me, Let's pitch in and help. Many hands make the work light. And uh, I know some of the people on Steve's schedule that he would like like to, uh, Get to, to do podcasts with. And I simply can't wait. Well, for listeners, you may have seen it in the group. Uh, I threw it out there. Kay made a comment recently. I think it was earlier this week, actually, about doing an RV tour, a podcast tour, and getting an RV and I just kind of threw it up there and I said, hey, anyone got an RV? And I've already got someone with an RV in the Orlando area who's told me, <laughs> what we'll do is I'll drive you around, get you familiar with it in, in, in Florida, and then I'll let you go up to Georgia and North Carolina. And I'm going to see if I can actually swing to get out to Nashville as well. And there's a lot of stories out there, a lot of stories in that southeast. And so I'm, I'm, I'm really excited to go do that. The few that I heard in Nashville when I was there a couple weeks ago. Oh, there's some You, you could dudes. spend a month there. Oh, dude. I mean, and, and it's not just Nashville. I mean, you got, you got Houston, Dallas, yep. Charlotte area, Southern California, Seattle. I'm, I'm looking forward to getting back out there next summer and really getting some stories. And yep. it's just, we have the most amazing community. I agree. Thanks for being on, my man. Thank you. Thanks, Steve. Thanks for what you do.